Good afternoon and welcome to this week's edition of Navarra, brought to you uh, by Navarra Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and I'm joined in the studio this week by my erstwhile co-host Aaron Bastani. Uh, you can, as ever, follow today's discussion, which is going to be on uh, this week's budget, of course, uh, on Twitter under the hashtag NovaraFM. And follow us on social media of all types uh, under the heading Navarra Media. Uh, so we're going to jump right into talking about this week's budget, uh, a budget which can be summed up uh, as let them eat bingo. Uh, <laughs> this is a really extraordinary uh, uh, you know, uh, series of financial manoeuvres uh, by uh, you know, the, the uh, ever hungry for power, George Osborne. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, really... Uh, a, probably the most nakedly political budget uh, that Osborne has released in his time as Chancellor. Uh, it has sort of uh, uh, two directions. One is uh, that that kind of uh, direction towards a power grab within the Tory party itself. It's particularly interesting uh, by the number of MPs that uh, Osborne checked off in his speech. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, of course, uh, a budget with eyes towards the next election. Uh, and this, of course, is where it becomes really rather sinister, uh, because this is Osborne looking at turnout rates among over 65s going, OK, uh, about three quarters of pensioners vote. Mm -hmm. uh, this is over 10 percent. Uh, more than any other demographic. Uh, and, and, you know, capturing that vote is really going to be essential for a Tory manoeuvre in 2015. Uh, and this, of course, I mean, you know, this, this is, <laughs> you know, uh, part of this is because, you know, whatever kind of recovery uh, exists, uh, and we've said on the show before many times uh, that this, this kind of recovery is mostly fictional or, um, or boosted by, uh, you know, a rather uh, unsustainable uh, uh, series of, of financial manoeuvres uh, and sort of rising consumer spending, equity withdrawal, and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, but this is this is this has been thus far uh, rather a voteless recovery. So what he's doing here is thinking about this is where this is where we're going to to, to be moving. Um, so I mean, I guess that you know the two things we're going to be discussing today is this budget uh, as a political manoeuvre, but also as an economic manoeuvre, how those things relate, but also particularly how they have relevance to us. Um, you know, I mean, in terms of so the, the question that we should ask, of course, is whether it's useful to look at budgets. Well, the answer to that, of course, is yes, um, because they determine a lot of the terrain uh, that we have to move on. Uh, I think, of course, we have to avoid the policy trap. I mean, looking at it with the same criteria that those who, runs, who run businesses who are invested in sustaining uh, capitalism uh, look at. So growth is, not, growth is not our shibboleth. But growth, of course, as you've pointed out before, Aaron, mm. is an extremely important indicator when looking at uh, you know, what people uh, are doing here. Uh, so measures taken to achieve growth should interest us partly as a diagnostic of how the crisis is restructuring social relations, uh, but more immediately in terms of effects on how we can struggle in the here and now. And it, it doesn't look good. This budget is nakedly political, huge sops to key Tory constituencies, but without even an attempt to fight, to fight this by you know, <laughs> the loyal, loyal, loyal opposition. And the question here is why? Because they're chasing the same few votes in a system irretrievably broken. Um, I mean, the only benefit uh, for any of us uh, that I can see certainly uh, is this this uh, you know, uh, insulting rise in personal allowance from 10,000 to 10,500. And this, of course, is likely to be eaten up in cost of living rises. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone who looks at their energy bills mm -hmm. can see exactly where this is going to go. Uh, the Chancellor's key phrase uh, that he repeated at, you know, several times during the budget is building about building a resilient economy. 
Um, of course, the economy, economy can be resilient at the expense of the people who have to live within it. Um, the other thing, of course, that struck me uh, is the way in which uh, throughout this budget, uh, Osborne glides over the fact that by his indicators when he was elected, he's failed. Uh, you know, this, ch- this is a chancellor who's abandoned austerity a long time ago. The deficit is supposed to be gone or almost completely disappeared by, by the end of next year. Yeah. Uh, so the reality here is that, that, that Labour, of course, cannot and will not tackle him on this because they're signed up to the same political reality that after the next election, there will have to be terrible, devastating, you know, community destroying austerity uh, of a kind that we've only seen yet previewed. And of course, uh, any promise of tax cuts after the next election is pretty much out the window at that point. Uh, these measures, uh, including income tax, national insurance, VAT, these are all going to have to ride. Um, you know, where are you going to find money in the spending re- review immediately after the election? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a wise, uh, a, a wise and wide open question. How much more miserable will it have to get? I mean, that was a great introduction, and I think you're entirely right. There's two elements to this budget. There's a political element and there's an economic element. Of course, it's a budget, there's an economic element, that's what it's all about. Uh, but at the same time, there is a political element, you know, because, of course, we're, we're about to move into a... We're about to move into a general election. Budgets are always political. At the same time, we're also seeing manoeuvring within the Conservative Party. So George Osborne doesn't just want to be the next Prime Minister, he also wants to be, um, you know, as an extension of that point, the next leader of the Conservative Party. That was evident in so much as he was handing out all these sops, as you so rightly pointed out, to uh, members of the Conservative Party explicitly, literally name-checking them. This was absolutely astonishing. So I think we really need to be smart here. We need to talk about the economics. We need to talk about the politics. A few a few interesting facts. After 2015, 90% of deficit reduction is going to have to come from spending cuts. Mm. Like you said, that's before they start talking about reducing the top rate of income tax to 40% or they get rid of the death duty slash inheritance tax. And those are the sorts of things that a Conservative Party that now is clearly moving to the right to undermine UKIP. Now, let's say you could do great in this year's European elections. Conservatives are going to have to start making promises like that. Right, And if they start making promises like that, the kinds of cuts you're going to see to public services are going to have to then move to the terrain of, yes, we're going to basically privatise the NHS. Yes, we're going to make even more drastic cuts to HE spending. You know, And it's going to be, actually, it's going to be a real bloodbath. And that's going to be dictated not by moves to the left and arguments about more progressive, quote-unquote, austerity, but actually from the right and UKIP. And the fact that the Tories now are really having to shore up their electoral core. Um, really fascinating. And this is something I really want to talk about later on. There's kind of sort of demographics of this, right? So um, if you look, for instance, in the United States in the last presidential election 2012, among over 45s, Mitt Romney beat Barack Obama. Barack Obama, this kind of the Democratic presidential machine in 2008 against uh, McCain in 2012 against Romney was based on high turnouts of people of colour, women uh, and, you know, essentially, you know, the working class. Here in the UK, what's happening? We've actually got very similar demographics. The millennial cohort, those born after 82, 83, 84, um, are the largest birth cohort since the baby boomers. That's the case both in the US and here in the UK. However, you're seeing dramatically different politics being adopted by those in power. The Conservatives are essentially repeating the mistakes of the Republican Party in the early noughties under George W. That is, they're trying to shore up their base you know, in the case of the Republicans, that meant going for the moral majority, quote unquote, Reagan's great silent majority um, of, you know, the elderly, the religious and so on. Here, that's more about, you know, sort of comfortable, nest egged, mm. potential UKIP voters. And that's coming at the cost of really isolating whole swathes of the rest of the electorate. So 
really want to talk about the economics and uh, as a part of that I want to talk about a piece I wrote yesterday on Navarro Wire front bubble and bluff five things about hashtag budget 2014 but also key here is this if George Osborne is ever the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and his mandate is an extension of the kinds of policies and politics we saw in yesterday's budget I mean look politics is always about coagulating combining assembling you know a diverse array of interests within parliamentary politics anyway right I mean, this looks like the most narrow assembly of interest one can conceive of. It's basically the CBI and over 65s. James? Well, this is, a, I mean, uh, this is always the great uh, truth about the Conservative Party, of course, which is that uh, they represent an extremely narrow range of interests, but managed to, uh, uh, via bluff, indeed, and PR, uh, suggest that they represent a far wider one. Um, this is, of course, uh, becoming less and less sustainable as, as a political lie. Um, but it's, I, it's, to me, it seems interesting that you bring up the, this question of, of youth, right, and, and this birth cohort, the millennial birth, birth cohort. Because this is interesting, um, b- because there, there is no cohesive political power uh, among that generation uh, in the same way that there is uh, among older vo- voters. And, and this is, this is of course, partly because that generation doesn't vote, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but but it's, it's partly, of course, because there are uh, extremely diverse class interests among that generation, right? Uh, and this is something that's actually, to, to my mind, going to be sustained by this budget. Um, because the, the, you know, the, the stuff about uh, you know, uh, sops to older generations, to the to the grey vote. Oh, I don't buy this. Uh, it's it sops to wealthy. Yes, yes, wealthy yes, 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 yes. People, yeah. and, and this is the thing yeah. that, that to me is, is striking. Yeah. Um. So so this this to me immediately says, okay, what what we can't have and and what will not work here is a generational politics, generational politics of resistance. Right. Let's mobilise the youth, um, as if the youth were an entity that that were <laughs> not riven by by class, by race, by gender. These things. So 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 you know, I think we have to put that to one side. And this is going to be, it, it seems very clear to me that a lot of the analysis about this budget is going to say, ah, uh, you know, the youth have been screwed over while, you know, they're giving things to old people. This is not, this is not true. Uh, this is, once again, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, a, a very class-oriented budget. Um, but, but the thing here about, uh, and of course the, the great uh, headlines about this budget is, is the stuff to do with pensions. Um, and, 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 you know, it's a far greater and immediate access to uh you know, sudden lump sums of cash, uh, the ability to draw down more from a pension pot. Uh, and so so this seems to me to, to, and there have been headlines already about, you know, will this fuel, this is likely to fuel, oh my God, it's going to fuel uh, another explosion in the buy-to-let property market. I think that's uh, a reasonable assumption. Uh, but you have a thing here, right, where, okay, you, this is going to sustain obviously an exclusion of the young or in particular, those without family money from the property market. So you're going to see a far greater division uh, Mm. among those two contending classes. Yes, uh, of course, the purchase of property is uh, at this point a higher yield investment than than quite a lot of other things. and, and yes, of course, what affects is a key Tory demographic. But the thing that's striking to me and the thing that hasn't really come out in a lot of conversation about this is that it's not about isolating you know, a particular uh, demographic while they're sort of still alive, isolated, sort of monadic. Uh, OK, so what we're going to go is go for old people. Um, old people have families. Uh, and this is this is you know uh, you know the vast majority of people are heterosexual. They reproduce. They have you know 
any kind of sort of schooling influence, any sort of Tristans and Hugos and these kind of people. Uh, and, and these are the, you know, this is the, this is what they want to shore up here because it's far easier to pass on wealth if it's in property. You know, there are all kinds of loopholes around inheritance tax. We've had nothing about inheritance tax. This We've is why I think about it's, inher- it's a big thing, and I think they're yeah. going to go for it yeah. sooner rather than later. Inheritance yeah. tax. Sorry, go on. Um, but, but but this is you know the, the, the reason that, that this hasn't happened is that you know <laughs> these people want to keep open this loophole or these several loopholes. Uh, Whereby you can transfer, uh, you know, a previous generation's wealth to a new generation through property, through uh, sort of all sorts of jiggery pokery around who owns what, um, the establishment of trusts, stuff like that. Uh, and and this is, you know, the, you know, the, so so what you have happening here is two things. You have, uh, you know. You know, the ability to draw down from the pension pot, which gives these people uh, the ability to access uh, the buy-to-let market mm. um, or, or, or access you know, the purchase of further property. Uh, that in itself is interesting. But you also have here the establishment of uh, uh, the, the new ISA, right? So uh, the ability to shield uh, £15,000 of savings uh, per annum uh, from further taxation. Uh, so once you've earned that money, it's it's shielded from further taxation in these in these ISAs. Now between a couple, that that will enable you to save thirty thousand pounds a year. Uh, safe, yours, done. Um, now there's no you know this is that's your limit annually. There's no lifetime cap on, on you know the amount that you can put into an ISA. So uh, or ISAs. Uh, so what you're going to get here. Uh, as far as I can see, is over the course of the next decade, uh, a series of ISA millionaires emerging, uh, who are those those relatively wealthy, quite well off, uh, middle class people, probably both parents earning, who are going to pour their money into these ISAs, end up at the end of a sort of rolling period with a huge amount at their disposal. And this is going to go into property, and as far as I can see, is going to be transferred that way to the next generation. Uh, so, so basically, what you're doing here is you know, uh, uh, leaving this open uh, for other avenues of transfer uh, between generations of the middle class and the upper class. Mm. Uh, and that, to me, is, is really worrying. And of course, you would think, okay, let's say you have the weakest sort of social democratic opposition ever, um, who are sort of in hawk and craven, uh, unintelligent, incapable of predicting this kind of thing. Even they, you would imagine, would say, okay, what would our response to this be? At least, at the very least, you would cap uh, what you can do in a lifetime in terms of ISAs and, and yep. sort of shielding savings in this way. Is this visible uh, among the Labour Party? No, of course not. Uh, and, and of course you have, on the other hand, the Labour Party sort of following the lead and going, oh yes, we'll vote for, for a welfare cap. You know, this is, I mean, this is absolutely baffling. Mm. Um, you know, even for someone who has so low an opinion of the Labour Party as I do, mm. um, you know, the, the lack of any kind of opposition here is really staggering. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's it? George, George Osborne yesterday said this was a budget for... The strivers, the makers, the savers, the doers, the makers and the savers. I have no idea. Anyway, what's interesting is that actually, if you look at projections on um, household savings ratios to income, they're saying that basically by 2020, household savings will be at the same level as they were in 2008. Mm. So basically, you're not going to have savings. Um, you're you're going to have very low levels of savings. I mean, this is interesting. I mean, the Office, Office of Budget, uh, Budget Responsibility is projecting that, I think, um, that figure will stand at 3.2% in 2018, 
uh, and it's 5% today. Now, in November 2011, they were projecting 6.2% today and 5.7% by 2016. That would be the lowest it's going to get. So they're now very, very explicitly saying that savings are going to fall far below what they're even estimating two, three years ago. There's reasons for that because, of course, that's where loads of consumer demand is mm. coming from. So the idea that, oh, we're trying to help savers get by. Well, look, if people were saving like you're saying you want them to, well, first of all, that's not possible for a number of reasons. We'll talk about why. There would be zero growth. Um, I want to talk about, I mean, this is amazing. Look, when you talk about the Labour Party, let's talk about the left liberal press. I mean, there's Aditya Chakraborty in the Guardian State. Okay, he's great. Spot on. Larry Elliott, again, good, not bad. The rest of the Guardian is an absolute shambles. Patrick Wintle, their political editor. I mean, this guy just repeats verbatim what the OBR is telling him in terms of where uh, wages and where uh, productivity is going over the next several mm. years. Look, the OBR hasn't got basically a single thing right in the last, you know, three years. It's now doubled its growth. Uh, its growth estimates for this year have now been doubled on last year. So they under-egged it. The last three years, they've been over-egging it. So all of a sudden, everybody's taking everything they're saying at face value. Don't do that because for better and worse, they haven't got a single thing right since they've been in existence in 2010. The new statesman yesterday, you know, so it's a recovery, but not the kind of recovery we, we really want. Okay, well let's 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 put to one side that's complete nonsense, and 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 I'll be very clear why. There was a very interesting comment by Mark, the, you know, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, um, the day before the budget, and this was fascinating. He basically criticised the BOE and his predecessor Mervyn King because he said, look, the Bank of England before the crisis, before 2008 did what most major central banks did. That was inflation targeting. They kept an eye on inflation. How do they keep inflation low, especially after what's been called the Greenspan put of 2000, after the dot-com sort of bubble ended, after any sort of, you know, any really substantial Fordist basis for growth in the G7, G8 economies sort of went away. What did they do? They did the Greenspan put. Uh, and that was about keeping interest rates incredibly low to ensure that growth stayed high, primarily in the fire, finance, insurance, and real estate industries. Uh, but at the same time, they also kept inflation low, which meant you could also keep wages low, but that didn't matter too much because the working class could still reproduce itself relatively cheaply through the consumption of increasingly cheap or stagnantly cheap um, consumer durables, which were imported from the global south. Now, Carney's saying that that exclusive focusing on keeping inflation low meant they didn't keep an eye on financial stability. In other words, the Bank of England had no problem before 2008 stoking bubbles with low interest rates if that meant keeping a lid on inflation, because actually, like I said, inflation is all that really mattered. Interestingly enough, Carney pointed out and this is a quote, it doesn't take a genius to see that similar risks exist today. He noted how risks were brewing because of the current period of ultra-low interest rates, historically without precedent, 0.5% since the crisis, saying that this could, could, could breed potential complacency and excessive risk-taking in financial markets. Now, does that sound familiar to listeners? It sounds familiar to me. We're looking at near 0% interest rates, which are entirely necessary for growth in UK, the US, and much of the global north. And these are the exact same conditions which preceded the last financial crisis. Second point, interest rates this year are going to have to go up. If they don't go up this year, they're going to go up next year. Rates have to go up. Interest rates cannot stay where they are. Now, the bet is the wages will start to go up before interest rates have to go up. Because if they don't, final demand is kaput. It goes. If interest rates go up 1-2%, let's say they go up 2%. I think this was something I wrote about in the LRB very recently. Let me find this. Where is it? Uh, yeah, this is something I wrote in the LRB. Um, if it goes up half a percent, there's big problems. If it goes up just 2 2.5%, Major problems. 
Late last year, the bank reported, this is the Bank of England, that average outstanding mortgage debt remains high at £87,000 and that any, this is in The Guardian, and that any rate rise not accompanied by an increase in real wages, which is the, the bet that's being made right now, would cause serious problems. The number of households most at risk of financial distress would double to nearly one in six if their mortgage rates went up by 2.5% and their real incomes did not improve. So you're looking at one in six households, that's a doubling, if real wages don't go up, but interest rates do. Now, we know that that is going to happen. The bet is, by the BOE, the OBR, and the Treasury, that the former will too. Wages have been in decline for six years, and that's a big deal. Um, and like I said, that growth is absolutely crucial. Now, some of the figures they're plucking out from what seems like thin air on wage growth are nonsensical. You have no idea where they're going to come from. Wages have been in decline in 08, in 09, in 2010, in 2013, 2014. Where growth is coming from at the moment, and this was a video I made for Navarra TV, uh, what, a month ago? Um, I got a bit of flack because I was wearing quite a deep V, you know? If I'd waited a month, it probably would have been merited, ah. but it certainly wasn't then. I appreciate that. Uh, that's just, you know, that's my... I'm not a Northern European, put it that way. And I, I don't dress for winter. Um, you know, and we pointed out that a lot of that growth is coming from record numbers entering the labour market. And that was reaffirmed in yesterday's budget. The OBR is saying that, you know, unemployment could drop as low as 5 or 6% in the next couple of years. Growth can carry on if that happens. But if productivity doesn't have an attendant increase, then once unemployment reaches 5 or 6%, there's nowhere for growth to come from. So the huge bets, the huge bets, and this is for austerity to be politically manageable after 2015, a threefold in my view. Um, wages are going to increase. Uh, interest rates won't go up much. And, and if they do, you know, it's going to be 0.5% or 1%. And that, that's the bet that inflation is going to remain low. And productivity is going to go up. Now, if any one of these three things does not happen, just slightly, you have, I think, a big problem. Mm -hmm. If two of these things don't happen, so if wages don't go up and if productivity don't, doesn't go up, I mean, if wages and productivity don't go up for, let's say, between 2016, two years, you're looking at a basket case in this country, I think, on a par with probably worse than France, actually, because it's got a very different set of problems. You would have seen stagnant productivity for the best part of a decade. You'd have seen declining real pay for the best part of a decade. You'll see increasingly leveraged households seeing their demand hit because interest rates are up, wages stagnant. So I don't know. It's a tough one. And in that context, I really, really don't know where the left comes. Because again, they're making all the same mistakes they made before 08. You've got the statesman saying, you know, this is a recovery. And look, this is what, you know what I'm worried about, James? You know, because we have to think about individually here, right? You know, I want to write, I might want to write an article for The Guardian or that. They're not going to publish us, mate. Because they're going to say, oh, look, it's those two cranks talking about the crisis. Everybody knows there's a recovery. What the hell are they on about, Right. Right, And then it happens again, and there's bail-ins in 2017 rather than bailouts, and they'll be skimming deposits over 85k. And the New Statesman, The Guardian, Patrick Witter, nobody saw it coming. <laughs> nobody saw it coming. <laughs> we could never have predicted this. This is cyclical. Ah, I mean, but, uh, if, if you had a penny for every time somebody said that after 08, <laughs> you know. Anyway, go on. I mean, you know, of course, the, the, this is exactly why I, I remain deeply uninterested in the left. Um, of course, uh, I mean you know, like, uh, but but the point here, the point here is is of course that, that we you know the, the left is interested in being sort of morally uh, righteous uh, after the disaster, 
right? I mean, it can prove yeah. it can prove that uh, you know it, it had you know a sensible plan uh, that would have made everyone just a bit miserable uh, rather than really miserable, uh, really in the the, the depths of disaster. Um, so, so the question here, of course, is that yeah, and and I mean this matter, right? I mean, in terms of discursive intervention, and you know, I'm I'm. You know, not an unreconstructed actionist, I think discursive intervention is actually very, very important. Uh, and the avenues to do that are probably not The Guardian. Uh, <laughs> I mean, The Guardian, I don't know, it's, I'm going to publish something about, you know, how my chihuahua lived through the crisis. I don't know, you know this kind of thing. Uh, you know, human, human, human interest. Of course, human interest is actually about whether you can feed yourself, um, whether you have a roof over your head, uh, whether your job is going to pay enough to meet your gas bill. Mm. Um, you know, and, and this stuff, of course, is, 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 you know, these people find it very hard to address because uh, ultimately, you know, there's very little answer that they can bring. I mean, this question that you bring up, I actually find very interesting about, you know, where do these, these notions of, you know, uh, you know, growth in wages come from? Well, they come from hope, actually. They come from very little else. Uh, you know, and so, so we have here, okay, so this expectation, this desire, this, uh, you know, hope that wages are going to grow. Um, there are certain economic key de- demographics that are actually helped, as we were saying at the top of the show, uh, by these changes in access to pension funds, right? So the notion, of course, is that, uh, you know, the, the comfortable middle class are going to be able to, to plug the gaps uh, in their children's ability merely to reproduce themselves uh, by withdrawing stuff uh, from their pension pots yep. and then hoping, you know, against hope that there's something resembling a state pension which will allow them at least to, I don't know, boil up some gravel off the street and, and eat it. Uh, this is, you know, so this is, this is, you know, actually the great hope in the disaster, right? Um, the, the, the few remnants of, uh, of the social democratic compact will allow people to live long enough for, for I don't know, growth to reappear from somewhere. Uh, but, 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 you know, I mean, the, the question here is also, I think, interesting in terms of, uh, so, so the big response to, to this budget has been, uh, particularly with, with the changes to pension, uh, you know, and, and, it, and in fact, uh, George Osborne was asked this by Evan Harris uh, this morning, uh, not, not in such precise terms, but, but sort of fudging around the matter a bit, uh, saying, you know, what do you do about moral hazard? Uh, what do you do about the fact that the, the, the British are financially illiterate, mostly feckless, um, you know, desirous of, I don't know, a conservatory, um, an exciting cruise? Um, Was this Evan Davis or Harriet? Evan Davis? Uh, Evan Davis, yes. Sorry. Yes. Godfather of the poll tax. Sorry, <laughs> yes, go on. Yeah, it sounds, yes, like, sounds like him, yes, doesn't it? Yes, it is indeed uh, Evan Davis. Um, uh, Evan Harris is that ridiculous liberal Democrat, isn't he? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they all? Uh, well, one, of the, one of the few and last living liberal Democrats. Uh, but but this you know, so so the question really was about what do you do about moral hazard and, and, and what they're actually and moral hazard here is 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 you know what economists use to to say that they they think most of the population are feckless and stupid and and will desire uh, immediate gratification over long term financial planning and this is not a negligible question right because you know actually the way in which financial products operate in this country is that they're so complex that you you can't actually expect people to be you know deeply financially literate about them you know I, I'm sure many people people listening to this have had sort of letters saying, you know, what sort of pension scheme would you like to invest in if they have a job? It, let's say some people listening to the show have a job, right? Uh, at some point, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> at some point, you get a letter saying, you know, what do you want to do about your pension? At which point people go, well, you know, I ain't bloody well know. This is, you know, this is baffling. Um, and, and, and quite rightly so. I mean, this is the, the way they think these things operate is you know, to corral you one way or another and leave it to the, the hands of these mysterious financial advisors. Right. Well, whatever. So moral hazard is is the notion that um, we're, I don't know, going to spend 
our money on, I don't know, drinking ourselves into the grave on a cruise ship circling the Mediterranean, probably with Legionnaire's disease or something like that. Um, but but so, the, so the thing that, that happens here is, okay, so, so how do you prevent that happening if everyone's going to do these huge drawdowns from their pension pot? What Osborne is banking on is precisely this investment um, in, in, um, uh, in, in, God, what was it? Lee Edelman's phrase, the fascism of the baby's face, right? Um, that that, that you are, you are, uh, your life is brokered towards the, the sustenance uh, of your children. Uh, and this is, this is, you know, this is actually probably what's going to happen with a lot of this stuff is that this money is going to gradually be frittered away, not on, you know, the exciting cruises and stuff like that, but actually paying for groceries, tuition I mean, fees, uh, tuition fees yeah. uh, um, you know, stuff like, okay, uh, not, 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 you know, giving people a, a, a giving children a deposit for a house but simply helping them make their rent um and and this is the stuff that's going to happen for the middle class now for for for, for, for the rest of uh, the people who are not running the country uh, this is you know pie in the sky territory anyway uh, the notion that you can you know the, the drawdowns from this stuff is going to be very very small you know Anyway, this stuff is not really going to, to matter. Um, I mean, the, the, the other question here, and I, I think there is a longer term question about what happens to, to, to pensions in this way. Um, and, and I do have to say, every time I talk about pensions, you know, there, there's this sort of rather cynical voice at the back of my head. Why are you talking about this? It's not as if you're going to have one anyway. Um, so, so, but but this, this problem of avoidance, right, uh, is that, okay, you know, let's say people sort of nuke their pension pot and then have to rely on a state pension for the rest of their lives. Well, it's a difficult prospect, actually, uh, as, as they you know, really don't meet uh, basic and standard requirements here. But yeah, so, so the desire here is to, to to avoid moral hazard by making by linking these these generations to younger generations and saying okay we're going what we're going to do is have this huge withdrawal here and it's going to fund uh, the very basics of reproduction so you know the very basics of the ability to sort of pay for your groceries have a roof over your head um, so, so this is this is really um, a ploy to to bring to to further stimulate. Uh, this sort of ridiculous economy that we have about you know, property and you know, the, the property prices and their relation to, to <laughs> the fundamental inability of any of us to have any. Um, and and this is I mean this is the lock in. This is the lock in. This is this is the way it's supposed to work. Um, the the question here is is you know whether this is actually going to work. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's open. No one knows. Um, there, there is some interesting stuff that happens uh, that happened in Australia, certainly after the 90s, um, when, when this stuff was going on. Um, a very similar thing happens here, the liberalisation of, of, of the ability to take out money from a pension pot. Um, that, I think, is worth... Uh, you know, thinking about because you you suddenly did have people uh, a, a boom in spending, of course, or at least a, a substantial influx into the market. But then you have at the end of of life. You know, I mean, the, the great thing is is that people do actually live longer than they think, and this means that you have, unfortunately, people ending up in absolute misery in old age because you know the state pension gets you know, more or less devastated, uh, and and that money is gone. It's gone. It's been eaten up. It's been sucked up by a property market which is you know, absolutely voracious, uh, and, and so. You, you do have this problem here, and this problem here is striated by class. I mean, it, it does allow uh, the middle classes to to, to further cement uh, their class position at the expense of pretty much everyone else. Uh, so yes, this pension stuff looks like a disaster as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, I mean, well, the whole thing does, right? But I think, yeah, I, some of your tweets, this is a pre-record, um, some of your tweets today, I Thursday, are quite instructive as to what you think on pensions and ICEs. Here's, a, here's an amazing number. Again, nobody's talking about it. So the Deficit for the financial year for for last year up until this point, i.e., January, 
um, it was ninety-four billion pounds for the annual. Yeah, that was about ten months of the calendar year, right? So that's ten months. Hitherto, it's ninety billion. So the deficit year on year is down four billion. Now, if you include transfer of Bank of England assets, or even you know the privatisation of Royal Mail, it's actually up. Right, the deficit's up. For all mm-hmm. the information we have on the year so far, the deficit is up. I haven't heard a single journalist in the mainstream media say this. Now, if you want to find that, I'm not making it up. It's on the Office for National Statistics website. It's a PDF. It came out in January. It's less than two months old. It's the most recent document on public accounts they have released. I I can't find a single journalist who's actually released it. Now, I think there are two interesting reasons for this. First of all, the left liberal press is dreadful. Actually, no, I'll say three reasons. The left liberal press is dreadful. Secondly, journalists in general, left liberal journalists in particular, are economically illiterate. And that doesn't mean you need an education from the mm. School of Economics or UCL or Oxford or Cambridge. It means you need to be curious and not disposed to swallowing whole the myths of the powerful. Those are the two most important things for any education in economics or politics or indeed anything. Um, and thirdly, the data the left tends to get comes from the trade union movement, right? <laughs> this is our big, big, big problem. This is why we don't know how many people. Are, no, people talk about zero hours contracts. Oh, you know, two percent of the economy. We're double what we thought it was. Two percent of the economy work on zero hours contracts. Like, uh, at a zero, mate. You know, like, or, or or outsourcing, or on workfare. You know, it's about record numbers going into work. We know lots of that's work for. We just don't know how much. Mm. Why is that for progressives, for radicals, for revolutionaries? Because all the data of the left comes from the trade union movement, and actually, they couldn't give a flying about any of that stuff, right? That's the problem. So we're sort of at a, 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 a bit of a loss there. So there's three reasons why a lot of this stuff isn't really sufficiently analysed in the left liberal media. Um, and a lot of that's due to the trade union movement. I mean, look, if you were just listening to some of the stuff that wasn't just coming out of the Labour Party, but the, the TUC about this, again, it's all sort of moral, it's all sort of moral, sort of innocuous moral judgment. So no, let's actually talk about the deficit. Actually, let's talk about failings. Like you say, by his own measure, uh, the deficit was meant to have gone on by now, you know, we're three years behind schedule and we're never going to, look, the deficit if it disappears is going to be after 2020, right? Mm-hmm. And I know a broader point here, the UK has only run five budget surpluses since 1980. Yeah. Back to normal does not mean running a surplus. The problem is the UK has had structural problems in terms of a post-fordist economy since the mid-1970s. Those have been masked by financialisation, equity withdrawal, and of course North Sea Oil. On that final point, North Sea Oil, it's running out. Mm-hmm. There's an article which I'll happily tweet tomorrow, it's out by the Daily Telegraph, it's talking about falling output in the North Sea. Now, given petroleum is one of the UK's biggest and most high value exports, how the hell, how the hell does that make sense if the OBR is expecting export growth of 2.6% in 2014, rising to 4.7% in 2015, and 5% in 2016, right? How the hell does that make any sense? Now, in 2012, exports of goods and services increased by 1.1%. Okay, that sounds kind of good, right? It's on the up. But imports increased by 3.1%. So that meant the deficit got bigger. That was in 2012. In 2013, exports went up by 0.8%. In the three months to November last year, exports of goods went down. They went down, right? Now, in 2008, the UK saw a 25% devaluation of pound sterling. That was meant to mean a lot of explosion of exports. It never happened because the UK's export base has been so massively eroded since Thatcher, since you know the, the sort of demise of the mining industry and steel manufacturer, automotive industries that actually precedes Thatcher. You know, since the mid-1970s, there's nothing really to build on anymore. Even if you do see major devaluations in currency, so uh, these kind of numbers, these projected numbers on UK exports, and that thing I wrote yesterday on Navarro Wire was primarily about 
wages, productivity and exports. And actually in all three, the OBR is doing complete nonsense. The budget is a 120-page sort of flight of fantasy. They're projecting 5% growth of exports from the period 2014 to 2018. Now, take, take to one side North Sea Oil, that was improbable. Given North Sea Oil ex- uh, production is going down, it's impossible. It's a flight of fantasy. And then they start talking, and this is funny, right? I mean, this is this, this is the kind of really sort of really weird. This is when it gets sort of really weird, you know. They're talking about <clears throat> they're talking about global growth figures, and they're saying that the global you know global GDP growth in sort of 2014, 15, 16 is going to be like four percent, right? Now we know that, for instance, China's in big trouble, mm. right? We know the US is in big trouble. Now, when I say big trouble, I don't mean revolution. I don't mean chumot. That's possible in China. I don't mean chumot. I don't mean you know sort of children of men, you know, or the road. I mean that growth is going to be down on what it has been, right? So we know that the US has seen major growth since oh wait. Sorry, since 2010, because of a, a big stimulus, right? They've got big problems with regards to their budget. They've got to sort those out. That's going to mean declining demand. China's got big problems with a huge shadow banking industry. It's 50% of GDP. That's going to have to be sorted out. Now, even if all of these problems are sorted out, sort of relatively innocuously, relatively, relatively peacefully, that's still going to mean massive drawdowns in GDP. We've seen that also in Turkey, Russia, Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia. A lot of the major developing economies have seen growth uh, down this year. It's going to be down next year as well and the year after that that might just be a cyclical thing that's not sort of you know big potatoes but it means that global gdp in terms of where i think it's going to be where most reasonable thing it's going to be is at odds with what the obr is saying so within that context if you're talking about you know the uk is going to see explosion of exports despite the fact that it's actually its currency has gotten more expensive again despite the fact north sea oil production is down and despite the fact that global demand is probably going to be down as well I just don't get it. Look, you can't just make posters about Britain being great with handbags and Cambridge satchels and think that's good enough to have a kind of export industry on a par with Germany. Not as simple as that. James? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, to my mind, the, the, the problem here is that um, I leave the sort of question of global growth to one side because it, it, you know, it's just uh, the notion that, I mean, this is essentially astrology, really. Uh, I mean, it, it really is astonishing the, 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 the tiny evidentiary base on, on which these decisions are made. Uh, to take, I mean, to take an instance in point, this stuff, um, you know, the, this stuff when uh, the question of, so how, the, how, how Osborne believes uh, that there is going to be uh, an exciting one billion in tax receipts from these uh, changes to pensions, right? Uh, and you ask you ask the OBR about this, and they say, "Well, we took some figures which we're not going to release to you because we've got no idea what they actually mean." Um, so, and we sort of bung them into an equation. We came out with about a billion, but to be honest, no one knows. Uh, and this is, these are, this is the, 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 uh, the, the data, this is the uh, forecasting on which these, these sort of <laughs> these budgetary decisions are made. Mm. Uh, and so, so you know, this is the thing, even by, even by the logic of a, a sort of Tory government, even by the logic uh, of, of any, you know, actually either side of the Houses of Parliament, even by, even by their logic, the, the way in which these decisions are made, are, you know, they're, they're basically treading uh, on thin air. And, and, and this, of course, you know, to, even to, to anyone who, who, who worries about very basic fundamental things about, you know, you know, where and how am I going to live in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time? Um, am I going to able, be able to have an old age? Will I have to work till I'm 80? Uh, these, you know, the, the way in which these decisions are made um, matter. And you know, to my mind, look, we're not going to change them by... Um, 
you know, being doing sort of exciting things uh, like running for parliament and having a sort of single radical candidate uh, in there sort of objecting because this does nothing. This does absolutely nothing in isolation. Uh, in well, in well, I actually think I think I actually think in general. Um, I, I mean, you know, what you're going to have, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a tribune of the people <laughs> no, standing up in parliament. No, but I don't think. Uh, look, I, I would I personally wouldn't put much energy into it, but if somebody. It, uh, you know, I think probably at worst it's probably harmless. I certainly don't, I don't think it's disadvantageous to uh, radical sure, causes. Sure. I mean, this is where but, I think some but, people but sort the of energy, the, 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 energy, the, the energy that is required to make that happen means that yeah. you know this is not this the is kinds of this people, is actually the kinds of people that go knocking on doors at eight a.m. on a Sunday in Wandsworth aren't the kinds of people that you and I know already involved in radical. But they should be. But they should be. If you know the kind of people who go and knock on doors at eight in the morning, those are the people that we bloody well need. Like you know, this is you know rather than. I don't know, sort of lounge around in a squat somewhere in... <laughs> if only. I mean... <laughs> well, even that possibility well, has I mean, been that, that, subtracted yeah, from yeah. the kind of horizon. Uh, anyway, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> let's not get into an argument about yeah. the, the... No, the go on. I shouldn't, I shouldn't undermine your original point. Yeah. Go on, because I probably but, but don't disagree. Is, so, but, but this is true. Ultimately, like, the, 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 the problem here is that, that this is not going to be changed um, by, I don't know, having, uh, I, you know, I mean, imagine if Caroline Lucas took a, a Meinhof turn. Even even having her sort of stand up in Parliament and say, you know, I, I every you know you should be bombed or you know you should have your 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 houses burnt down, um, people should shoot you in the streets, okay. rob you. Okay. What, what happened after she was arrested? Well, <laughs> what would happen after she's arrested? Absolutely nothing because there's no social base behind it. Precisely. It, no, but like, when there is, no, but my question is when there is a social base okay. behind it. Well, let's get to the point where there is a social okay. base behind it first. Yeah. At which point the the energy expended into making this kind of stuff happen you know the the endless sort of uh, campaigns of tusk uh, to have like uh, you know uh, i don't know socialism in one ward comrades the, yeah. you know this kind of thing you know like uh, it puts the cart before the horse in a lot of ways but, but the reason i'm saying this, to that, the, 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 the reason i'm saying this um is that is that the way to respond to this budget is is to is to look at you know what its priorities are. Its priorities are uh, are exactly about inflating um, and retaining an inflated uh, housing market, right? Uh, the bedrock on which the entire British economy is built. No. You know, what else? This is, I mean, the sine qua non, um, <laughs> without which, they, you know, without which there is not a British economy. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, you know, and I think this is again something that's not actually emphasized heavily enough in responses to this budget. Without a, a hugely inflated, steroidal, amphetamine-ridden uh, property market, there is there is no British economy. No. Everything falls in on itself um how do you sustain that well you make the you make you give people the ability to draw out stuff that they're supposed to live the rest of their life on and sort of you know uh, fling it up the wall at, uh, at you know this uh, hugely inflated bubble uh, you allow people to withdraw equity against their house and spend that that's how you inflate and continue inflating this well help to buy right i mean help to buy i mean they- Wow, we this was meant to run until 2016. It's now been expended, extended by four years to 2020, right? Now, over the weekend and Monday, do you know how much value was added to the largest house builders in the United Kingdom in terms of their market capitalization? So they've got, you know, they've got share prices and they went up. And so, what did that mean in terms of the aggregate value of these companies? How much did their aggregate value go up when Help to Buy it was announced that Help to Buy would be extended by four years? How much do you think it went up? It went up by half a billion pounds <laughs> in about forty-eight hours. So this is five hundred million pounds. That's because they've, you know, the government just promised to throw about yeah, yeah, yeah. hundred billion pounds to the UK housing market. I mean, the, and this, talking uh, about the, it. The, the, this is, a, of course, uh, rather than a reduction in stamp duty, right? Which is the, the, yeah. the nobody's uh, talking uh, about it. Where is that in, in terms of analysis of the budget? Nobody's talking about it. Absolutely, you know. Uh, 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 
But this is, I mean, like, the, the, I mean, the reason I'm talking about this in this way is because because when when you know one sees these kind of financial maneuverings, these fiscal maneuverings, uh, you know, on you know a computer screen, on TV, uh, you know, the voices of you know rather reptilian and insipid chancellor leaking through sleep from Radio Four in the morning. Um, when this kind of stuff happened, it, it, you know, it looks immovable, uh, right? I mean, it looks yeah. as if like this is a this is you know there is a peculiar kind of fatalism that afflicts even those of us who are politically active right i mean the notion the notion that, that these are uh, uh immovable coordinates uh, of political action right that, that this is the way it is and will always be until we achieve like a final and complete break uh, the, the, the stuff here that, that that i think should give us hope um is that like so and you know <laughs> and, and, and so the way to do this is to be like actually extremely pessimistic um, this this may sound counterintuitive. Um, it, it does, however, make sense. Um, <laughs> it's to be extremely pessimistic about the the possibilities that are open to us. Um, that were uh, you know the political limbs uh, of any movement in the course of the twentieth century. By which I mean uh, the party political system and particularly the Labour Party. Um, that opportunity is, is is largely closed to us. What what does exist? What exists in embryonic or you know uh, uh, sporadic form are rapidly cohesive social movements um, that confront a problem directly uh, and then tend to dissipate um, after having been crushed. Um, that is, I think, a fair assessment <laughs> of sort of. Uh, 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 extramural non-Westminster politics over the course of the past four or five years. Um, how do you build that sustainably? Well, you build it around something like housing, uh, which which means something is infinitely rep- replicable um, around sort of small neighbourhood areas mm-hmm. um, and, and that will have like a very, very strong social base because what you have here is, you know, the, the vast majority of people uh, who would want to mobilise are people who are directly affected by housing. They're directly affected by the inability to do anything, to move anything, to, to feel the ability to change precisely because they are locked in to something that is uh, vampirising them, uh, you know, week in, week out, month in, month out. Uh, and so, so so the hope for change here is not um, about, you know, and I and, 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 I've been, you know, following the the sort of uh, you know, permutations of of the sort of extramural uh, uh, left uh, for you know, obviously for some time, uh, and and there is this tendency, and I, I you know, I find it odd uh, to, to 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 concentrate on you know what we would do if. Uh, right, so so I mean, we had this recently, uh, and you know, and and it happens. It tends to happen around this around budget time, year on year. Right, if so, you go, uh, what would a people's budget look like? Oh, right? yeah, okay. no, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, so, so this is now, like yeah. the, the, this 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 game of hypotheticals oh, of, of, of sort of rather ghostly or abstract. You know, what we would do if we had power. Well, I mean, this this of course fails to, to <laughs> this fails to recognize that if you had power, your decisions would be constrained in a way that you don't realize. Um, yeah, and and this is you know. Uh, the 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 outpouring of uh, of a uh, grief for for Tony Benn recently um you know allowed us to look back and see you know very very clearly uh, you know Benn's rather self-justifying writings after he leaves parliament uh, are exactly this kind of like uh, you know regardless of whether or not Ben you you believe Ben in that he wanted you know to do uh, what he later said that he wanted to do uh, what he says and, and outlines very clearly in his diaries after he leaves parliament is that you don't have that kind of choice there that choice has to come and this is the thing that Ben was relatively good at saying later in life that choice has to come from somewhere else that choice comes from popular power it comes from uh, you know a social movement of people uh, and so so this, so this is the thing that I would you know I would say to anyone who's looking at this budget and going oh god what am I going to do there is 
a very deliberate thing that happens here, which is kind of uh, sliding into this sort of fatalistic uh, or, or, or sort of uh, <laughs> paralyzed uh, response to, to these kind of budgets, which is to say, look, look, I mean, how am I supposed to combat this? Well, you know, you, you're not going to do it by sort of sitting you know, in a garret somewhere and dreaming up, you know, a popular budget, which then suddenly the masses, uh, you know, will, will, will coagulate around. Mm. This is not the way it works. Mm. Uh, and and so, so, you know, my response to this kind of budget is actually one that I think you know should make us hopeful, but hopeful in a pessimistic way, <laughs> right? Which is to say that you know the, the opportunities for response here are really really slim, uh, but the opportunities for response are, are ones that allow us to completely renovate and build a decent you know and 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 really rather powerful social movement around these you know very key very fundamental issues like housing. Yeah. But it's not going to happen if you spend your you know if you spend your time only thinking about what you would do if you were in you know yeah. if you were in Parliament. <clears throat> I mean, well, the sum and bottom, the highest good for a lot of the, the people sort of writing these counter-budgets uh, is GDP growth, right? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. How do we have growth that works for people? Well, I mean, that's a contestable point. Somebody was sort of trolling the Navarro account after they shared my article yesterday saying, well, you know, you know, what, you know, oh, you want good growth, the right kind of growth. Well, look, deficits actually do matter because... <laughs> Deficits, you know, in terms of the social reproduction of the working class, isn't just through wage labour. It's not just through wage. It's also through the social wage of things like social housing, you know, collective unemployment insurance, collective health insurance, etc. Now, the point is, capital, you know, since the mid 1970s in particular, obviously always, but even more so now since the crisis, in terms of like a shock doctrine response to it, is trying to erode those gains, but also those kind of pivots in terms of the reproduction of the working class to the utmost extent. Yeah. So they, they literally need to pay no more than the reproduction of labour power, nothing more, not one penny more. So within that context, within that kind of story, that narrative, growth does matter because deficits matter and budget surpluses matter. If you have deficits, that means that the powerful will try and further erode the social wage and have a political argument for doing that because um, <clears throat> the sum and bottom is GDP growth, not the reproduction of the working class or indeed the allocation of certain public goods being, such as housing, such as uh, education, being given to the working class. When I say the working class, people that have to work in order to reproduce themselves, to live. Um, so growth matters, deficits matter, surpluses matter, not to get growth, but because we're interested about the working class and its emancipation. Uh, after that, yeah, so <clears throat> political parties, um, you know, I don't know. End of the day, I think it's, look, we've got the European elections this May. Actually, I think they do matter. I think the, the fact the radical left is going to come third is really important. The fact that it's going to be at the far right, I think, is really important. If Tsipras was the European Commissioner in 2020, now that's not impossible. I think he'll be, I think, you know what, I think Tsipras could be the Commissioner of, uh, he could be the European Commissioner just as easily could be as he could be the kind of, you know, uh, for heading up a Greek government. Well, I, I mean, he'll find <clears throat> a bullet lodged in his head if that's supposed to be. You know, uh, you know at the end of the day, the Commissioner doesn't have, I mean, it has agendas, you know, sub, you know actually, he'd have less agency as the Commissioner, of, true, head, of, yeah. head, of, um, the head of the European Commission than as uh, you know, head of a Greek government. <clears throat> My apologies, sorry, I had a bit of a tough week. We've got less than 10 minutes left on Navarra Media. You're listening to Navarra Media on Resonance 104.4 FM London. Um, yeah, you know, I think elections do matter. And the point is, what's the relationship between holders of public office and social movements? Great interview with Natalie Bennett. Uh, it's going to be going up next week. I had it, you know, leader of the Green Party. And it kind of reaffirms your point. My apologies, I'm going to have to cough here. <coughs> right, that should do the job. And it kind of reaffirms your point, right? Which was, you know, she was talking about tax avoidance. And I said, well, what would you do about tax avoidance? You know? uh, if you were the government, if the, the Green, let's say the Green Party had, you know, a, a majority of 80 
Let's say they had Blair's majority in 1997, you know, 100 and something, 140 or something. What would you do about tax avoidance? Now, the point is, actually, there's sweet FA they can do about tax avoidance without a global settlement on dealing with tax avoidance. That would mean a harmonisation of things like corporation tax, income tax, and really stamping down on tax havens, right? Really stamping, as, as in making it illegal and having real hardcore transparency in all transactions. Um, there's nothing they can do. There's nothing any government can do, actually, even the US, unless there is a corporation across the G20, that's the world's 20 most important, strategically, geopolitically, economically most important economies, or the G71, that's basically everybody, right? Um, and, you know, including sort of the, the UN General Assembly and so on. Nothing's possible. And I said that to her, and she's like, you know, as I said, what would you do if you had a government? And I'm not, criti I'm not criticizing, by the way, Natalie Bennett's probably more intelligent than any Labour, Labour frontbencher I've ever met. Very, very, very sharp woman, very intelligent. Um, in, in a number of ways, smart political operator as well. Not just uh, she didn't just have sort of you know some she wasn't she wasn't talking academies. Um, what would you do? And she was saying, well, you know, we'd, we'd make we'd you know do these things so that more people would know about tax avoidance and it'd be more accountable and more transparent and more people would know about it. That's kind of been done, yeah, and it's been really effective. But the point is that can't just be the end. That's the means. What would you do? to clamp down on tax avoidance. And actually, there's not much they can do, right? Like you say, um, that highlights two things. The powerlessness, actually, of holders of public office sometimes, but also the power of what? I mean, that first action by UK on cutting the Vodafone in October or November 2010 was like 70 people, mm. you know? Now, they did more to catalyze something and of course, the people that followed them in actions across the country, briefly, uh, up until March 26th, when it became a sort of, you know, unfortunately, became this quite centralised sort of liberal Leninist, uh, in which it did, you know, network. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no two ways about it. It's been very effective, nonetheless. Um, I mean, they've certainly, you know, those people who led it have certainly got lovely jobs at NGOs now. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, no comment. I wouldn't know. But no, no, but no. The point is, it was an exceptional campaign highlighting a specific grievance and yes, a particular area of, of public yeah. public policy. And actually, they did far more than any political party's done in highlighting that area and that agenda. Since I have no idea when. Since I mean, that's 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 the response in this budget, right? I mean, this is you know Osborne saying, "Oh, we're going to to clamp down on tax avoidance." Of course, details here are rather thin. Um, for precisely the reasons that, that you say, is that you know there there has to be. I mean, the the, the consequences of actually that that UK Uncut campaign means that now every politician, including those uh, on the right, uh, has to do this kind of very odd ritualistic performance of saying, you know, uh, "Oh, we've given HMRC some new powers to clamp down on tax avoidance. Uh, we we've, we we are uh, uh, really trying to make this happen." Uh, while at the same time making sure those powers are not so strong uh, that you risk capital flight, you risk. Uh, you you know, any any kind of uh, uh, actual clampdown on, on this stuff, I and mean, this is stuff, not stuff they actually want to happen. Um, but, but I do find that I, I do find that sort of interesting. But you know, the question of, to my mind is always how far it goes, uh, right? I mean, this is the the, the millions dollar question, really. Um, and the, and the thing that I find interesting about it specifically is that the the stuff you're talking about in terms of uh, in terms of tax avoidance, that global question, points uh, as I think all of these these things do, you know, especially housing, uh, at its ultimate, you know, when it's taken to its logical conclusion, when you sort of spell out the stuff that's happening here, it's you know, it, it spells like one the impossibility of doing something about this in in this kind of limited sort of Keynesianism in one country sort of mm. sense. Mm. Um, 
But what it says is that we actually need to destroy the social relations on which this is built, uh, and and that stuff is very exciting to me because when you know when these campaigns get underway, you find you find that like actually the conclusions that people draw um, are not those um, that get carefully moderated and put out by a press team. But the vast majority of people involved in these campaigns will say yes, okay, you know, I get that this needs to happen. The question is how to make it happen, and that's like the, I mean that's the the, the next step that that. that that fails to get articulated, mm. I think. Mm. I mean, also, this we've got uh, just under five minutes left. I think we should get some concluding remarks. I want to say two quick things, actually, talk about Russia quickly. You know, we're talking about, oh, there has to be a global compromise, the G20, the G71. Right now, actually, I think there's a real... There's a real <laughs> I mean, Putin's speech after the annexation of Crimea, by the way, that was the first annexation of a European or uh, Eurasian country since 1945. I mean, uh, proper annexation. Uh, that's a big deal. That hasn't happened in my parents' lifetime. Um, you know, his speech was that sort of, you know, one day the West calls something white, the next day they call it black. It was, an, you know, it was absolutely astonishing piece of front to the Western powers. Um, and what I think is really up for grabs here is that after 2008, you have a certain understanding of neoliberal global capitalism. It comes up against a barrier has a problem. And since then, there's been a debate about do we have that on steroids or a more egalitarian version of that? I don't think the left has been strong enough or powerful enough to have made the argument for a more egalitarian version of that. And also workers in China <clears throat> haven't kicked on after 2009, 2010 in terms of catalyzing something around that. That hasn't happened. So what's quite possible now is that another... Look, and people in, in the ultra-globalization room are going, another globalization is possible. You know, Vladimir Putin probably thinks the same thing. You know? <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, Russia, Syria, China... Iran, the ASEAN countries, India, you know, there's no reason why these people can't among themselves form perfectly coherent, um, you know, economic areas, trade areas, etc. Uh, that don't really pay much attention to the WTO, the US, EU. That's not the case so much for now, but let's see where that goes. So these things about tax avoidance and globalisation, they have an interesting, an interesting kind of side point to them. Second point, and then you can wrap up, James. You know, they were talking about uh, Gillian Tett, a great piece in the FT earlier on in the year, talking about, look, the big challenge this year to spreadsheets of political risk. We've got the referendum in this year in Scotland, not mentioned in terms of what's going to happen to the UK. There's a referendum in Catalonia this year as well. The Spanish government, some members of the Partido Popular, the right-wing government, is saying that they're going to send tanks into Catalonia if that happens. <laughs> no, this is, this, is, you know, this is happening. We just had the other day um, a, a non-binding referendum in the Republic of Venice, which is what they want. In terms of number of people in the Veneto now want to secede from Italy. So I think it's a pretty sure bet that actually a lot of the states of the European Union aren't going to stay together for much longer. Uh, so political risk is a big thing. Alongside that, the world's two largest producers of wheat, Russia and Ukraine, are about to possibly enter, enter a conflict. Alongside that, the, Europe's largest exporter of gas, 40% of it, Russia, is possibly going to have to tap some time this year. Again, none of that mentioned in terms of growth or political risk. James, you've got two minutes, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and that actually brings up that we should do a show at some point soon on balkanisation, which is, of course, this, this, uh, you know, the, this political tendency. Anyway, that's one side. In terms of the, the, the budget, um, in terms of looking at the budget, what I would say uh, is that, okay, you're going to read a lot of analysis here that's going to pit generation against generation. It's not a generational budget. It's a class budget. Uh, and the thing to do with that, the kind of affect that you draw from that is to say exactly this. Okay, what we're going to do is going to extend this as far as it goes. We're going to be pessimistic about you know, what this entails for us. But don't be fatalistic. Don't imagine that it can't be changed. Uh, and that, that should be a clarion call to all of us to get serious uh, about this stuff, because otherwise we are going to be boiling gravel off the street in order to eat by the time that we're 60. Uh, that's what I have to say on this budget. Great concluding remarks. Uh, my name's Aaron Bastani. James Butler, thank you as ever. Cheers. This is Navarro Media. Uh, see you same time, same place next week. Bye. <laughs>